Sentire Media. Hello everyone. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 2: The New Italian Kingdom from Odoacer to Theodore. At the end of the last episode, we left the barbarian Odoacer as the de facto king of Italy, although he never officially took that title. We saw that he had been a very helpful chap, sending the imperial insignia to Constantinople and abolishing the title of Augustus, thus making the year in which he deposed Romulus Augustulus, 476, the year that is considered the end of the Western Roman Empire. The cut with the past was quite clear, although it wasn't really perceived at the time. Indeed, there were also some elements of continuity. He still paid lip service to the Eastern Empire, being granted the title of patrician after some hesitation. But far away from the eyes and ears of the court of Constantinople, he was also referred to as Rex, king. He even issued coinage in his image, but not gold, as to not offend the formal authority of Constantinople. We also said in the previous episode that he descended from one of the many Germanic peoples who had made their way down to the limits of the Roman Empire and, in part, become absorbed into it. Indeed, by the time the empire fell, most of the generals, and indeed many of the soldiers of the empire, were so-called barbarians. Odoacer was the son of one of Attila the Hun's officers, and was born around 434, which makes him around 43 years old at the time of our narrative. Which is admirable, I suppose. I'm around that age, and the only thing that can get me out of the house is my Thursday evening football, I definitely wouldn't be going off to conquer a country, but anyway. So what exactly had Odoacer become king of? Well, the lack of organised central power for so many years had allowed the ecclesiastical authorities to slowly take on some administrative duties under the bishops. Odoacer did not interfere too much in this situation, and it also seems that he used some non-religious Roman officials to help him with the administration. He had the support of the Roman Senate and nominated consuls, although these elected officials and the Senate itself had very little real power. The population of the city of Rome was estimated at around 200,000, of whom only perhaps a few hundred were pure Romans. Quite a difference from the great city that had possibly reached a million in its glory days, the bustling political and economic centre of a great empire. All it could boast now were a few paper factories and one that made dyes. In the peninsula, those who lived on taxes were more than those who had to pay them, who had to sell up and become tied to the land of others. This is the start of the process in the Middle Ages, laying the foundation for the future feudal society. 
Roman high society was too interested in talking of Cicero and Aristotle and laughing at the bad Latin grammar of the barbarian generals, and the people were too worried about where their next meal was coming from to worry about being an empire, a kingdom, a protectorate, or whatever. We don't know an incredible amount about Odoacer's reign. There is a little surviving administrative documentation and some information comes from ecclesiastical sources. We know from those, for example, that he showed great esteem for Bishop Epiphanius. In response to the bishop's petition, Odoacer granted the inhabitants of Liguria, in the top left of the country, the northwest if you want to be precise, a five-year immunity from taxes after a natural calamity. He was also quite successful with what we could call foreign policy. First of all, he was able to win a sort of diplomatic victory with regard to Sicily. He was able to induce the Vandal king Genseric to cede Sicily that the Vandal had conquered in the chaos that led to the fall of the empire. Odoacer obtained the territory in Tributario Iure. In a certain sense, he rented Sicily from Genseric. You could say it was the start of a northern European renting property in Italy. This shifted Odoacer's attention on the island, moving it away from Noricum, modern-day southern Austria, where another barbaric people came to settle, the Lombards, who in time will come to great prominence in our story. As well as trying to keep Constantinople happy, Odoacer also continued to nominally recognize the authority of the deposed emperor, Julius Nepos, although he was also very careful not to invite him back to Italy. In 480, Nepos was murdered where he had sought refuge in Dalmatia, a part of modern-day Croatia. Odoacer invaded to punish the conspirators who were duly killed. Then, since he'd gone to all the bother of getting over there, he decided he would annex the area to his kingdom, or protectorate, or whatever you want to call it. You wouldn't want to go all the way out for nothing, after all, would you? So, things were looking pretty good for Odoacer. When he then made what turned out to be perhaps his only and last big mistake. Although in time, things may have gone south anyway. Indeed, not all sources mention Odoacer's action in what we're about to talk about, putting it all down to the Eastern Roman Emperor Zeno. Things over in the Eastern Empire were getting interesting. There was a power struggle going on between the Emperor Zeno and the Master of Soldiers, a man named Ilius. For more on this, you can head over to the History of Byzantium podcast. Anyway, Ilias asked our Odoacer for help, and he duly obliged, invading the westernmost provinces of the empire. This is the part that isn't actually mentioned in all sources, but what follows is. Zeno responded by inciting the Rugi, a tribe who had settled in present-day Austria, to attack Italy. Odoacer went over quickly, and in a preemptive strike, he crossed the Danube and defeated the Rugi in their own territory. At this point, 
Zeno came up with another idea that could help him kill two birds with one stone. Incidentally, in Italian, that expression is prendere due piccioni con una fava, that is, getting two pigeons with a fava bean. I don't know how practical it is, a fava bean rather than a stone, but then I couldn't kill a poor bird with a stone anyway, not only because I wouldn't want to, but also my aim isn't that good, but let's leave it at that. Anyway, before we go to Zeno's idea, we need to go back and take a quick look at the Goths again. The origin of the Goths can be possibly traced to Goetheland in southern Sweden. They then gradually migrated through Europe over the centuries and made their way down, like other German peoples, to the confines of the Roman Empire, the Limes, reaching the shores of the Black Sea. In time, they expanded further from this area and divided into at least two distinct groups, the Visigoths, or Western Goths, and the Ostrogoths, or the Eastern Goths. We have already spoken about the former when in 410 the Visigoth king Alaric sacked Rome. The division can be made approximately along the Dniester River, which runs through modern-day Moldova and the Ukraine. Now this is a bit of a simplification. Indeed, within the two groups there were further divisions and the labels we are using now didn't even come around until later. However, for the love of simplicity, and we do love simplicity at the history of Italy, let's now turn our attention to the Ostrogoths. They had been united under their king, Theodoric, after he had defeated the rival Ostrogoth leader, Theodoric Strabo, as if having one Theodoric wasn't confusing enough. And now the first Theodoric, who came to be known as Theodoric the Great, was being a pest to the Eastern Roman Empire, which brings us back to our narrative. We said that after failing to solve his issues with Odoasa by using the Rugi, the Emperor Zeno had another idea. Why not convince the Ostrogoth king to stop being a pain in the neither regions and go and take Italy with the Emperor's blessing? After all, it's not like the Emperor was going to get it back for himself anytime soon. So, that's what Theodoric did. He took his army and invaded Italy in 488. Now, I say army, but in truth, the fighting men were only a part of the tens of thousands of people that made their way into Italy. There were also women, children and the elderly in a long caravan of marching men and carts and animals. In short, rather than an invasion, it was a mass migration. As is often the case in these situations, it's hard to tell how many people we are actually talking about. Some sources speak of 150,000 or 200,000, and I have even read the number 500,000, but only in one source, while others simply state that there were many, but not enough to become a majority in the peninsula. On the 28th of August, Odoasa met the Goths on the Isonzo River and was defeated, and then again in Verona. Theodoric then headed for Milan, where part of Odoasa's army had been left behind. Here we come 
to find a bit of Game of Thrones-style treachery. The general there was a certain Tufa, who promptly asked Theodoric to join his army. Theodoric accepted and sent Tufa to Ravenna, where, when he arrived, he switched sides again, causing the death of many Goths. This is also because Odoasa, meanwhile, had levied another army. In these times of migrating Germanic tribes, that simply meant calling up the warrior citizens and some captured slaves and, hey presto, there's your army. This was all bad news for Theodoric, but he also had an ace up his sleeve. Indeed, soon after that, fresh Visigoth reinforcements arrived under King Alaric II, which allowed Theodoric to defeat Odoasa once again along the banks of the Adda on the 11th of August. Odoasa escaped back to Ravenna and Theodoric followed. However, finding it impenetrable, he simply dug a trench round it, stuck some troops in it and headed off to Rome where he was welcomed as a liberator and from there he proceeded to conquer the south of the peninsula. I must mention that this is according to a slightly older source. More recent sources don't have Theodoric visiting Rome until at least the year 500, so about 10 years after the events we're talking about. Meanwhile, after a two-year siege in which the inhabitants were reduced to eating dog meat and grass, Ravenna fell in 493. The signing of the peace treaty was overseen by the bishop, Giovanni. Some sources mention that it was only the offer of this treaty that actually got Odoasa to surrender the city. Now, at this point, sources seem to differ on exactly what happened. Some sources say that the agreement was for the two to rule together, while others report that this was suggested by Odoasa to Theodoric and this was the reason for the former's death. There are also some sources which talk of a banquet given by Theodoric in Odoasa's honour, at the end of which it seems that Theodoric himself may have killed the now ex-ruler of Italy. Yet other sources speak of this happening around ten days after the banquet. However things may have really gone, it's quite clear that Theodoric was never really crazy about the idea of joint rule, and whenever it may have happened, Odoasa died, and soon after him, his family, and many of his officers. He had reigned for 17 years, from the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 to his definitive defeat and death in 493. Next time, we'll see how Theodoric and his successors got along and what state the country was in. Until then, thank you very much for listening. If you want to get in touch and say hello or ask a question, please do so. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com and at the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media or if you're feeling really generous, go to the support page 
and click on the donate button for PayPal. Or if you want to support us on a monthly basis, you can go over to patreon.com or click through from the website and become a patron and get access to extra content. Until next time, thanks very much again to everyone for listening and arrivederci. Hey, Theo. Great party, man. Yes. I'm really psyched about this ruling together thing. Yes, about that. Come with me. I would like to show you something. Okay, cool. Oh, dear. Odo Asses seems to have accidentally repeatedly stabbed himself. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy, and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.